0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast. This is Reverend Kusala from downtown Los Angeles, where suffering is optional. This very first Urban Dharma podcast uh, is a talk I gave at UCLA to the University Buddhist Association, the Buddhist club on campus and the title of the talk was Karma
1: Uh,
0: so the Buddha in his very first talk said four things he said I have discovered four truths the first truth I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory because we're born Because of birth, we have to get sick. Because of birth, we have to get old. Because of birth, we have to die. Because of birth, everything we own, cherish, and hold on to will be taken away from us. And that culprit is impermanence and change. Because of birth, we find ourselves existing. And there are people in our life that we don't like and places in this world we don't want to be in. And we are around those people and in those places far too often. So that was his first truth. Now, here we are in beautiful downtown Westwood Village talking about suffering. I'm going, yeah, it's really hard to find a parking place, you know, that suffering. But it's more than that. It's, it's just about how difficult it is to be a human being. And it, it, I, I know there's some just really good parts about being a human being. I like being a human being. I ride my motorcycle. I couldn't ride a motorcycle if I was a dog or a chipmunk. But I was given this wonderful human rebirth, and now I can ride a motorcycle. So that's great. And there are a lot of other things in my life that make me feel good. But there are times when life just is not what it's supposed to be. And that's what the Buddha was sort of talking about. The second thing the Buddha said was that life is difficult, or we're not as happy as we could be because each and every one of us has desire. And we want to hold on to all the good stuff in our life. We want to just cling to it. And we want to push away all the bad stuff in our life. So here we are every day, clinging and pushing, clinging and pushing, trying to get it right. And we're not born in original sin. We're really lucky as Buddhists not to have that original sin thing to deal with. Rather, we're born with original ignorance. The Buddha said we're born stupid. But that's okay, because all you need is a little bit of knowledge, and you're not going to be stupid anymore. So our path is to acquire wisdom and compassion, which will get rid of all that ignorance and delusion, which causes us the most suffering, desire. Third truth is, this is one of the best truths. The third one is, there's an answer to all this unsatisfactoriness, and it's called nirvana, it's called enlightenment. And the fourth truth is the Eightfold Path, the path that leads us to enlightenment. Those eight path factors will take each and every one of us To our final perfection as a human being. And to be a perfect human being in Buddhism, it requires us to get rid of our lust and only have love. It requires us to get rid of our greed and only have generosity. It requires us to get rid of our hatred and anger and only have loving kindness and compassion. It requires us to get rid of our delusion and ignorance and only have wisdom. Now, when I heard those words the first time, I thought to myself, how cool is that? This whole path is designed to make me a perfect human being. Now, the problem with trying to be a perfect human being is we don't have very many examples. Do we? we, (laughs) We read the newspaper or watch television trying to find those perfect people in the world. Where do they all live? What town are they hiding out in? Where do those perfect people live? So I mentioned earlier that I really don't have much faith. But I do have confidence, which is a little different than faith. And I have confidence that this path will take me to perfection. And I have confidence that there are already people in this world who are perfect. It's just we don't notice them. Because perfect people don't need to draw attention to themselves. So they probably dress very, you know... Normal or just regular, they probably don 't have cool hair, they probably don 't even have an iPod, they may not even have a car, they may take public transportation. they may be just nice people and not cause any disturbances, so they never get our attention they 're always in the background, you know, seeing how they can be of assistance or service to others so sometimes it 's hard hard to spot those perfect people, but I have confidence that they are in this world and they do exist, and I have confidence that this path will Eventually, allow me to see my own perfection that's already there. And the only thing I need to do to see that perfection is to get rid of my lust, my greed, my hatred, and my delusion. Well, it's a big chore. It's a big, you know, commitment. It took the Buddha at least 550 lifetimes. So don't get too bummed out if you're not perfect by tomorrow. It just is a gradual path. But I really want to talk about. <clears throat> karma tonight and, and some of the aspects of karma that I think are interesting. And the first aspect of karma I alluded to earlier, but it's the fact that in Buddhism we do not have a divine lawgiver that decides for us what is right and what is wrong. Now, I went to school in the 60s. I was in high school in the 60s. And you know, we were a radical bunch. We questioned all authority and we trusted no one over 30. And we noticed that the rules were very arbitrary. What's right today could be wrong tomorrow, and vice versa. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but in L.A., a few years ago, you couldn't drive any faster than 55 because we were trying to save gas, you know. And then they changed the laws and said, okay, we have enough gas. We can now drive 65 again. Okay, so it was wrong to drive 65 for a while, and now it's right to drive 65 again so where does, where does right and wrong, where does, let me get this out. Here. There we go. So where does right and wrong really come from, in a Buddhist sense? If there's no, you know, gold tablet for us to read, well, karma, karma takes the place of a divine lawgiver. Karma is the natural law of cause and consequence. The natural law of cause and consequence. And karma will not forgive you if you mess up. Karma has no ears. And you can get down on one knee and petition karma to please forgive you because you really messed up. You shouldn't have taken that parking place from that old lady, but she was driving slow and I was driving fast and I took it anyway. And I don't care if she didn't find it. And you go, oh, I really messed up. Karma, can you please forgive me? And karma has no ears. Karma can't hear you petitioning. Karma has no eyes. Karma can't see you. Asking for forgiveness. So as a Buddhist, we're encouraged to take personal responsibility for what we think, what we say, and what we do. Now that is the definition of karma, according to Buddhism. Karma is thinking. Karma is speaking. Karma is acting. And every time we think, speak, and act... We are transforming energy. Uh, A person smarter than I am once said, you can't create energy and you can't destroy energy. You can only transform it. So I sometimes think of human beings as being these walking transformers. And we're taking this sort of neutral energy, and we're using it in our thought, in our speech, and in our action. And then we're throwing it back out into the world. The Buddha gave that a value. He said there is skillful karma, and he said there is unskillful karma. Now, what determines skillful karma and unskillful karma is not whether it's right or wrong, but how much suffering is increased or decreased. So there you go. No big heavy burden with this. If I'm skillful, I'm reducing my suffering, and I'm reducing the suffering of the people around me. If I'm unskillful, I'm increasing my suffering, and I am increasing the suffering of the people around me. Skillful, unskillful. In Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism, those words are kusala, akusala. Kusala, akusala. Skillful, unskillful. Now, I have the Buddhist name of kusala which means skillful. But I was given that name because I wasn't. And my teacher wanted me to be reminded every time somebody calls out my name, Kusala, he wanted me to be reminded of what my path is. And my path is to become more skillful, to reduce my suffering, but also to reduce the suffering of the people around me. Now, I'm a big, sort of loud speaker, you know, and I take up a lot of room. I have this ego thing happening, and I have 225 pounds happening. So I can be unskillful really easily. I can just open up my mouth and say something so stupid and, and, and so obnoxious, and believe me, I have, and now I see this cause and consequence, cause and consequence, cause and consequence. And even if I go and apologize for being unskillful, the deed has been done, hasn't it? The deed's already been done. So how do we use karma to our advantage in that case? You see, cause and consequence. Your karma has now created a consequence. In Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism, the consequence is called vipaka. Karma, vipaka, cause, consequence. Once I've created the karma, the consequence is sure to follow. What do I do to alter the consequence? If I can't petition a divine being to step in, to intercede, to change the consequences, what can I do? I can use karma to change the consequence. But I've got to be skillful about this. I have to understand how this whole thing works. So now I've said something really stupid, and there are a bunch of people who really think I'm dumb and obnoxious, and now I've got to figure out a way to change the consequences of my karma. So what could I do? I could be a nice guy. I could offer to be of service or assistance to that group of people I've insulted. Maybe I could say, you know, you guys need a website, and I just happen to have a little extra web space on my site. Why don't I create a website for you? And they might say, oh, Kusala, that would be so nice if you could do that, because we don't have the thousands of dollars that's needed to create a website. If you could do that, we would really appreciate that. Wow, I'm thinking, okay, now... I am being skillful. I am offering my services for free. My karma, everything I think, say, and do, is starting to change the consequences of my past unskillful karma. Cool. So, we can do good things for people or animals and change the consequences of past karma. We are not talking about predestination. Everything in Buddhism is a constant state of flux and change. To give you a better example, I have a friend named Christine. Christine is a lawyer. She comes from Vietnam, and she's very small. And when I was a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall, she said to me, I want to go with you to Central Juvenile Hall, but I'm afraid they're going to kill me because they're very big. And I said, well, you know, once you go there, you'll see that these guys behind bars, even though they're really big, are nice. And they only had, in some cases, one moment of unskillful speech or activity. And the consequences manifested in a very dramatic way. And now they ended up in juvenile hall. She said, I know, Kusla, I know, but I really am so scared. I can't do it. And it wasn't... Any more than a couple weeks later that she called me up and said, Kusala, I'm going to juvenile hall with you this week. And I was amazed. I said, well, why, Christine? What happened? And she said, somebody broke into my law office. And they rifled through my drawers looking for money. And they stole a computer. And I realized something was wrong with my karma. I need to do something to change it. So I'm going to bring mangoes with me. And I'm going to teach the guys in juvenile hall how to do eating meditation. How to eat mindfully. So she pushed her fear aside because she wanted to change the consequences of past karma and she went to Juvenile Hall with the mangoes and we sat on the floor in a big circle and we cut the mangoes up in small pieces and we all ate mindfully, very slowly, each bite. Um, um, and we taught how to taught the young people how to be mindful when they ate. And she came away with such a wonderful feeling of having provided a service to the community, having overcome a fear that was based in ignorance rather than reality, and also having created merit for herself that could be used uh, later. So karma, especially to Americans who are so consumer-oriented, is big business. We have a karma account. We got it when we were born. That's our account. And all the skillful stuff we do, we get merit for, and the merit goes into our account. And all the unskillful stuff we do, we get demerit for, and that's taken out of our account. So we're always making deposits and withdrawals. Deposits and withdrawals. And the deal is, you want to have more deposits than withdrawals. Because it will be useful to you in the future to have this merit established. Now, why is that the case? Well, another example of karma that I like to use is the karma of, um, is this metaphor of having a glass of water and a teaspoon of salt and stirring the, uh, the salt in the water. And when you taste from the, the, the glass, all you can taste is the salt. And yet, if you take the same teaspoon of salt and stir it in a forest pond, there is so much water that it absorbs the taste of salt, and you can't taste the salt anymore. And if our karma account has enough merit, even if we are unskillful, it will take the taste away for us. It will absorb it. So we have to have a lot of merit, like the forest pond. We don't want to have just as much merit as the glass held because then we're going to taste the salt. That's another way of looking at it. As an ordained monastic in the Buddhist tradition, it is said that everything I think, say, and do has ten times the power. Wow, isn't that cool? So if I'm nice, I get ten times the merit, ten times more merit than you do. Wow, that is so cool. But if I'm a jerk, I get ten times the demerit. So I'm thinking being a monastic is big business. And that's why we have so many vows or rules that we need to follow. Because it doesn't take much to be unskillful. It just takes a moment of heedlessness. Where you're not thinking clearly. You're not speaking in a soft, gentle way. You're not acting with compassion. One moment. So here we are, learning about karma, seeing how we can apply it to our everyday life, To change our life for the better, and also to change the people around us, their lives, for the better as well. Now, one of the shows I'd like to recommend, and I very rarely recommend a TV show, because most of them are just really stupid, except on KCET, public television. But there's a brand new show called My Name is Earl, and it's all about karma. Earl found out about karma from Carson Daly at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he realized his life was a mess because of his karma. And what he needed to do to have a better life was change his karma. So in every episode, Earl's out there changing his karma. He's going back and contacting people he was unkind to, unskillful with, and righting the wrongs of those past experiences so he can have a better life today. I'm thinking to myself, what a positive message that is to everybody, that we don't have to wait for our life to get better, we can be proactive right now, today, and have a better life. And when I talked to the young people at Juvenile Hall, I told them, you can have a better life right now, today, and all you have to do is say, please and thank you. Now, isn't that stupid? That's what my mom told me to say when I was a little guy. Always say, please and thank you. But if those young people started saying, please and thank you to the staff at Juvenile Hall, their life would dramatically change. And they would be in charge of it. It would be because they understood cause and consequence. And that's what we need to do, is understand cause and consequence. And that's what karma, karma is the cause, vipaka is the consequence. Can we have collective karma? Yes, there is a thing called group karma. And it's nations. Nations have karma, you know. And I'm not sure what kind of karma our nation has right now. But some of the consequences are starting to manifest in the world around us. And uh, I haven't been out of the States for a while, but I've talked to people who've been overseas in Europe or in India and traveling and stuff. And they say that being in America now is a little different than it used to be. Because people want to know, you know, are you for the war or against the war? Republican, Democrat, you know? Are you a Green Party person? Do you like the environment? Is the Kyoto Treaty important to you? Things like, you know? So there is this group karma as well. And our karma can be influenced by the people we hang around with and the cities and states and countries we live in. We're part of that karma and it's part of us. Now, the most important part about karma is that eventually, as a Buddhist, we want to end our karma. We want to bring our karma to an end. Stop it right now. How could you stop karma? What do you think? What do you think? How can you stop karma? All those past lives we've had. You could have had 100,000 past lives creating karma in each one of those lives that have transmigrated from lifetime to lifetime. You know, in Buddhism, the soul doesn't go to the next lifetime. In Buddhism, we don't have a soul to go to the next lifetime. Now, Buddhism is pre-Christian, and it's also pre-Islamic. So when the Buddha talked about soul, he was speaking about the Hindu concept of soul, the Brahman concept of soul. So please, don't go and tell the Catholics they don't have a soul, because they do. But the Buddha was talking more about self, more about ego, more about personality when he used the word soul. And he was saying to each and every one of us who practices or is interested in Buddhism that that ego, that personality is an illusion. It is a process. It is not an event. It does not exist independently. It is conditional. And it's always changing, ever changing, all the time. And that's one of the problems when we think we're that process. Because now we're looking for stability. We want to be secure. We want to be safe. And the job of the ego, the personality, is to look out for us, to be aware of all the things that can kill us, and to guard us and protect us and move us away from those. And so we've grown used to having that personality, that little voice talking to us, sharing with us every night, and this sort of like commentary about life. Well, you did pretty good today, Kusala. You're okay. You had too much cake today, though. You're going to gain weight if you don't stop eating cake. Okay, I'm listening to my mind going (laughs) da 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 And I've always thought that that was me until I started to meditate and was able to sort of step out of that process and simply observe it. And when I saw the process continuing, even when I wasn't part of it in the traditional sense, I was amazed. It was like the magic show. I had a chance to go behind the curtains and see the self arise and create the world in front of me. I went, wow, that is so cool. you know. But there are times when I need to be that self. It's very important to be self because people identify with you as a personality. And so if I'm speeding on the 405 freeway and I'm pulled over, and the officer says, can I see your driver's license? And I say, sure, but, but you know, officer, you have to realize this really isn't who I am. You know, this, I'm, not, I'm unconditional, officer. This is just represents that ever-changing flux. And the officer would say, I think you need counseling. You know? So sometimes you have to be that ever-changing flux. Sometimes you have to be that person. And, and you don't want to go home and announce to mom that you're no longer who th- she thinks you are. Because that's going to make her suffer, isn't it? Even though now you've seen through the illusions of self and ego, and you're now free and unconditional, Your mom still wants you to be conditional. My mom still asks me to take out the trash when I go visit her. And then I rake the yard, and those are the things I do because that's what her son does. And I'm her son in that case. And now the monk does something else, and the guy that drives the car does something else. And we all have these little roles we need to play. But meditation allows us to play them more freely. Having said all of that, Instead of a soul migrating from lifetime to lifetime, our karmic energy transmigrates lifetime to lifetime. And that karmic energy has a name. That name, that word that defines that kind of karmic energy is called Gandhava. And it's a verb. So in early Buddhism, in the Theravada tradition, it said for a human being to be born, you need a sperm, an egg, and gandhaba, And the Gandhava seeks out the sperm and egg. From a past lifetime, seeks it out and connects to it. And that's the beginning of life, human life, according to early Buddhism. So that karmic energy now gives us this sort of predisposition. You know, sometimes young, you know, you're born and you get a brother and a sister and they're two totally different people. One is like this little saint and one is like this little rascal, always causing problems. And you think, how could they come from the same father and mother? Well, one of the reasons perhaps was the fact that their karmic energy was different from all the past lifetimes they've already lived. Does that mean we're stuck? Does that mean we can't change? No, no. We have this proactive approach to life as a Buddhist. That at any moment we can change the future by being aware of the present moment. Because our whole future comes out of this present moment. So there's nothing in Buddhism that says we're stuck. We always have an option. We can always make our life better. We can always make the lives of those around us better. But we have to do it. It requires us to do it. Eventually, the Buddha, after many, many lifetimes, realized that karma, because it was the one thing that transmigrated from lifetime to lifetime, was the reason he kept getting reborn. And every time he got reborn, sometimes he'd be a human being, sometimes he'd be an animal, Sometimes you'd be in the hell realm for a while. Sometimes you'd be in the, human, or the heaven realm for a while. But each one of those existences was unsatisfactory because of the permanence. They change. For a Buddhist, going to heaven is not forever. It's a really long period of time compared to earth years. But then, when the karma that puts you there wears out, you have to leave. And that's why in Buddhism we say even heaven is unsatisfactory because of change and impermanence. So the Buddha said, the only way I'm never going to suffer again is to find out how to exist without being born. How to exist without having my karma reborn again. And at the age of 35, he achieved this. He achieved nirvana in life. Nirvana in life allowed him never having to suffer again. And when his body died, when his body finally dropped away at the age of 80, he continued to exist, not because of birth, but because of nirvana. He found a way to exist without birth. So for a Buddhist, every time we're born, eventually we're going to suffer. And he needed to end his karma. And nirvana is the end of karma. But, interestingly, it's not the end of the consequence of karma. You're still subject to the consequences. So there's a couple stories of the Buddha with his uh, cousin, Devadatta, trying to kill him. Now, as the legend goes, you can't kill a Buddha. You can only wound a Buddha. So there was this one incident where Devadatta pushed this giant boulder off the cliff and it started rolling down the cliff right towards the Buddha but it hit another rock and splintered into 10,000 pieces and one of the splinters hit the foot of the Buddha and caused the Buddha's foot to bleed and that was the fruition of a past unskillful karma so even nirvana Even full perfection as a human being does not allow you to get out of paying the penalty for past unskillful speech, past unskillful action or intention, mind. But you're not creating any more karma. You can say and do and think anything and no karma is being created. Fascinating concept. So there are many books on Buddhist karma, but I just wanted to give you that short Introduction to show you some of the different facets of karma and why karma is so important. Now, there was a book that came out a couple of years ago called Buddhism Without Beliefs, Buddhism Without Beliefs by Stephen Batchelor. And in that book, he sort of said, karma doesn't really matter. He said, that's not the point of Buddhism. The point of Buddhism is the, the Four Noble Truths and the precepts and being a good person. But you know, you can't have Buddhism without karma. And you can't have karma without past life and future life. That a lot of times, and each one of us knows this to be true, a lot of times we see people, we know people who are so unskillful, so unskillful, cause so much suffering to other people, and yet nothing happens to them. You know, they're just like, you know, they just keep going on and causing all the suffering. And then you see this person who is so nice so pleasant, so wonderful, and they get in a car accident, and they're dead. And you think, give me a break. What is the deal? Well, one of the deals is past karma. One of the deals is the past karma reaching fruition in this lifetime. But having said that, let me go one step further and add clarity to that statement. In Buddhism, there are five reasons why stuff happens. In Buddhism, nothing ever happens because of one thing. In Buddhism, we do not have one thing. We have many things that are connected. Buddhism came out of a polytheistic environment, culture. So this concept of one is foreign to Buddhism. And a lot of people think one is the best number. I think one is the loneliest number. Little humor. So, so what's the problem with one? It's too easy. We're in a postmodern age. This is 2005. We're deconstruct- We are deconstructing the one, to find out what made the one one, and we're finding the many. Some people think one nation is the best. Some people think one god is the best. Some people think one president is the best. Some people think one is the best number you're ever going to have. I get nervous when people want to be one. Because you know what? One oftentimes leads to uniformity. I am much more comfortable with diversity and unity rather than uniformity. And Buddhism says nothing ever happens because of one thing. And I heard when the tsunami hit, I heard a Buddhist... Scholars say it was because of their karma that that happened. It was because of the karma in Sri Lanka that the tsunami hit Sri Lanka. I also heard a Christian minister say it was sin was the reason. And I just shook my head and said, "Don't, no, no, no. So there are five reasons why stuff happens. These are called the five Niyamas." I'll just run to them real quick. The first niyama is the natural laws, like gravity and heat and, and solid or firmness, wind, air, ether. The, the, the natural laws that make up this universe, that's the first niyama. So that's one of the reasons stuff happens, because we have those natural things happening. Okay, the second reason things happen, because of genes and chromosomes. You know, a lot of people, because of genes and chromosomes, are, are sort of like programmed to be a certain way. So it's not their karma that makes them that way. It has something to do with their genes and chromosomes and the natural laws, the environment, like gravity. Okay. The third reason stuff happens is karma, cause and consequence. That's the third reason why stuff happens, but not the only reason why stuff happens. The fourth reason stuff happens is because of dharma. And dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. Dharma is that if we practice Buddhism, things will happen to us. If we follow the Eightfold Path, things will happen to us. Because the Buddha was born on earth, things happened on earth that wouldn't have happened if he wasn't here. So Dharma, our religious practice, also changes things, also is the reason why stuff happens. And the fifth and last reason stuff happens is mind. Mind causes a lot of stuff to happen in the world. So when you look at the tsunami, well, mind probably didn't have too much to do with it. The Dharma probably didn't have too much to do with it. Karma may have said something to do with it. All the cause and consequence that went in, maybe not having levees or not having dikes or not having walls around Sri Lanka you know, or not having an early warning system, that has something to do with cause and consequence. But I think the, the first one, the natural laws of the universe, had a lot to do with that. That we have earthquakes and we have tsunamis, and it's always been that way, and will always be that way. And we shouldn't be surprised when those things happen, but we always are. And then we say, in all our ignorance and delusion, well, why did that happen? Was it something I did? Was it something we did? Could we have prevented that from happening? I know we don't want it to happen again, but sometimes stuff just happens, you know? And you go, okay, well, now that it's happened, now we go to work, now let's clean it up. So this idea of, of blaming karma for things to happen, or karma as the reason things happen, can get us into trouble. We can desensitize ourselves. We can be less compassionate and wise. We can look at a, a guy in the street who's living in a cardboard box and say to ourselves, it's his karma, and continue to walk. Well, it's not just his karma. A lot of things caused him to be homeless. A lot of things will be necessary to create um, an environment where he can arise out of that homelessness and be a productive citizen again, member of the community. So karma is part of our life in a very special way. And if we're smart, we can use karma to our advantage. We can use karma to make our life better, and we can use karma to make the lives of those we like and even don't like. Better. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah. I don't think
1: this, I'm sorry, I can't. I uh-huh. do
0: I you know, I c I couldn't hear it very clearly because I ride a motorcycle and my hearing is starting to suffer. So
1: like karma if if we
0: do something yes. with a good behind hoping that it will create good karma, right. I feel that neutralizes the good deed. Okay. Uh, okay. So if we do a good deed expecting something in return, right. will it neutralize the karma that comes back? Well, I don't think so. But that's the least skillful way to create merit. And that's a businessman's karma. That's, you know, it's conditional karma. And a lot of people who are in relationship are like that, you know. Well, I'll buy you a Valentine's Day gift if you buy me one. I'll love you if you love me. I'll respect you if you respect, you know, it's that kind of thing. Well, that's the very first level. And a lot of people don't get much, much further than that. But we shouldn't deny them that practice, you know, and... Uh, I know the Thai restaurant I go to in Koreatown has a little altar on the wall, and they offer uh, incense every day to the altar because they want to have good business. Now, that's cool. Okay. And, And then during the day, they'll offer food to people that are hungry, so they'll have good business. Okay, well... You know, they're working at the level they feel comfortable at. And they're, and they're still helping people and they're still making a difference in the world because that's how they understand karma. The best karma would be the karma that's unconditional. We would, do, If you practice generosity, for instance, and somebody comes up and gives you a dollar, you don't give them a dollar because they need it. You give them a dollar because you're practicing generosity. And you are giving it in an unconditional way. You do not care what they spend that dollar on if you give it to them. You do not put any strings on that dollar. You do not tell them, don't spend this on drugs, don't spend us on alcohol. You simply give them a dollar, unconditionally, and let them do what they like with it. Not because you're giving them a dollar to make their life better. You're giving them a dollar because you have greed that you want to overcome. And eventually, you are simply giving them a dollar. Ultimately, you're giving yourself a dollar because they, he, and you, she, and you are connected and always will be. And this idea of simply just giving with no strings attached is very difficult to accomplish because we all want to be recognized for our, our goodness. And I just got a nice certificate from the city of Los Angeles saying I was a good person. Well, you know what? It was very, it was very, I'm so happy that they gave me one. But you know, what really made the difference is when I showed it to my mom, I took a picture and I emailed the picture of the certificate to my mom, and she was so happy because I am a reflection of her. And in a way, all her hard work when I was a kid in some way paid off finally. So I really can't even take credit for that certificate. But my mom really enjoyed that. So that's why I'm happy I got it. Because other people are happy because I got it. That's about as unconditional as I can get sometimes. Now, most of us want to take credit for the good stuff and want to deny credit for the bad stuff. It was his fault. It was his fault, not mine. That's why it went back. When you're working with karma, it's, again, there's this unconditional attitude. Okay, uh, cause and consequence if i can accept the blame and accept the praise in an unconditional way in a selfless way okay my karma account my merit goes up eventually eventually and in the chinese tradition this is very important eventually we need to offer all merit we've received to everyone in the universe may i offer all the merit i received today to everyone in the universe so any merit that we've acquired, we give away immediately. And my friend, Reverend Hung Shur, put the dedication of merit to music. And I'm practicing, and one day I'll bring in my guitar and sing it to you. But it's a wonderful way of creating karma for yourself and others in an unconditional way, giving everything away. Now, the catch is, and this is in the, this is in the Dharma, is, if you give the karma away, the merit, you get 10 times back. So there you go. So you're giving it away unconditionally and you get 10 times back. Wow, that is so cool. So that's how I see it. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be too critical to people who are doing it because they want to gain merit. I still think there's a place for that. And some people start there and eventually work up to unconditional giving. But it's very difficult. In our consumer oriented society we are not encouraged to simply give, you know. We, we don't have very many examples. And uh, um, so that's that's my feeling. I hope that sort of ties in with yours too. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
1: if there are variables And fully understood. And fully understand. How is it possible to even measure something like as insignificant as karma against variables that could never be understood or controlled? Wouldn't it be significantly insignificant?
0: Significantly insignificant. I like that. It would. It would. uh, But the deal is, karma always gives us something to do. We never have to be a victim if we understand karma. We always have something to do. Now, the question is, well, does it matter what I do? You know, I mean, if I can't see the results in this lifetime, maybe. So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is doing something. And and I've often thought that Buddhism is more about doing than being. A lot of people say, I like calling myself a Buddhist. I like being a Buddhist. And I like to say, I like doing Buddhism, because that makes the difference. Whatever you want to call me, if I do Buddhism, it changes the world, and it changes me. So doing is very important, and karma is all about doing. And to give you an example, if you were really old and getting ready to die, and feeling like, why me? And I said to you, you can change your karma right now, I'll give you something to chant. You have to chant it all the time, though. And as you went into this process of dying and chanting, you would see you would be now doing your own death. You would be taking control, in a, in a manner of speaking, of your future and feeling confident about that. And that's a wonderful gift to give to people, whether it seems correct or not. But when you see people in the hospital, what's the first thing they do? They, they, they take your clothes and your ID and your jewelry, and they give you this little thing to wear. And they're just like, like stripping you away of all the stuff you are. And now you're a victim, you know, and you're just a number. And, and so the Buddhist guy comes in and says, okay, are you chanting? Are you practicing today? Come on. This is where you practice. The hospital is the best place to practice. You go, okay, okay. And I bring the books to you, and I bring some incense and maybe, you know, some... DVDs, so you can listen to other people chanting, and you and here you are now, and everybody else is watching TV, and you've created this whole altar. Your 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 room has become your monastery, and you're working on your enlightenment and your nirvana. And I think that is so cool to always have something to do. So, I see the benefit of understanding karma as being a proactive approach to life, because then we never fall victim. Does that? Useful? Is that useful? It's
1: useful. It doesn't,
0: it doesn't quite answer the question, though. Because you want to know if it really matters? Really, really matters?
1: I just feel it because we even consent the fact that there are variables that will never be controlled. And if that fact is consented, then I feel it's hard to decide what you're supposed to worry about if there's always going
0: to be. A <laughs> Sounds like control issues to me. (laughs) Well, we want to control. That's the whole deal with life, isn't it? We want to be in control, and we we aren't. We we can never be in control. You know, we we just there's too many factors that are in a constant state of flux. Even if we knew all the information necessary to control a certain situation, in the very next moment, all that information would be different. So, I think initially. I know, uh, and I'll use an example, my own example, that when I was in high school, I really enjoyed being in control of my relationships with women. I was in control, and, and I had opened the door, and I'd decide where we go eat, and I'd decide what we went to see. And, and these poor women, they were so kind to me. They just sort of went along and figured I was really a, a doofus, you know, but a nice guy. And, and, and then, as, as I started to get older, I started to see, you know, The less control you have over the situation, the more freedom you you yourself has as different ways of looking at things and having options that weren't there before because you were so into controlling the outcome, you didn't see all the other possibilities. And then when you go into relationship with other people, then you start, if you don't control them, they're more than likely going to be with you a lot longer. And it's like, in some cases, you can build a really small fence around them, a cow or a horse, to have them always there. And if you make this really giant fence around them, then the horses and cows seem to have more freedom. Maybe they don't even know that the fence exists anymore because it's such a big area. And yet they're more than likely just to stay in the same area too. So how can you be comfortable with not having to control? With, with Making choices based on compassion and wisdom, and also coming to a place of acceptance with the things that can't be changed because of your choices. So that is really the crux of the matter, I think, you know. And again, using a hospital situation, you're sick. So you choose the doctors if you're lucky enough to be able to choose doctors or hospitals, and you go in and dialogue with your healthcare professionals what kind of therapy you want to take, maybe, you know, chemotherapy or pills or alternative therapies, something like that. And your clarity, the clarity that comes out of your meditation practice, the wisdom and compassion, allows you to make pretty good choices. But sometimes, no matter how many choices you make, even though they're the right choices, it doesn't work. Now... How do you give up control? How do you give up making choices? How do you come to a place of acceptance with the way things are? You know? And if you can't do that, it'll be a very rough ride. Because you'll be yelling and clinging and grasping and holding on to how it's supposed to be. And nothing is ever how it's supposed to be at these last minutes of your life. And if you can let go and realize that everything is perfect right now without having to control it, you can relax into the present moment in a very special way. So control is good. If you're in a car, 70 miles an hour, you want to control the car. But control isn't always good. If you have a, a, a relationship with another human being, sometimes that control kills the relationship. So we have to be wise when we make choices to change things. And we have to be wise when we make Ourselves available to the possibility that it can't be changed, and so we have to accept it. Now that probably didn't answer your question either, but I hope it gave you something to think about. <laughs> yeah.
1: Are <laughs> you yeah. saying that like the natural phenomena, like the, the natural laws part of just being in this world, part being human or living being, and then that karma, like we can't control that, but controlling our karma helps us to reduce our suffering and to make us like. Be happier, better human beings, so if we practice like, uh, like having good karma or skillful karma, we'll reduce the suffering that already exists because of the natural world, and we're like, yes. we'll be better human beings as if, as if we didn't practice having skillful
0: karma. Yes. So think of those five things I talked about. Natural laws, genes and chromosomes, karma, dharma, your religious practice, and mind. Well, out of those five things, we have a chance to control three of them. We have a chance to control karma. Karma is everything we think, say, and do. So we have a chance to control that a little bit. We have a chance to control dharma, which is our practice, our Buddhist practice. And if we practice the dharma enough, we'll have a chance to control our mind. So we have some control of the situation. We have those three things. And those three things tend to balance sometimes those other two things. Genes and chromosomes, the natural environment. But sometimes, you know, the rain comes and the dikes break and you're in New Orleans and there you go. So no matter what kind of dharma or karma or mind you have, there will be a time when there's great potential for suffering. But how about if you were in New Orleans and your practice sort of decided for you to be of service to all who needed you? So your situation became secondary to the situation of everybody else. Their situation became more important. And you had all these people to serve. These people that didn't have water. These people that didn't have housing or food. And your job was now to go find them housing and water and food and make them a little bit more comfortable. So you wouldn't have been a victim in the same way. You would have had just a lot more work to do. And you would have been a a benefit to many people as well as yourself so in a way it's sort of balancing the consequences of the natural environment and the genes and chromosomes by the proactive approach to life that i've been talking about and a lot of people did that some people actually got in their car and drove to new orleans you know with just filled with stuff to give away to people because they needed it you know and i'm thinking i wish some buddhist monks some catholic priests and some protestant ministers and some jewish rabbis and some islamic uh imams had gone too And blessed all the dead bodies. Because this was the first time I can remember having just dead bodies lying on, you know, freeways and streets. You know, and and we were trying to, you know, help the people who were alive first and then. But can you imagine having the the clergy go in and start blessing all the dead bodies so they could have a good rebirth? What a message that would send. You know, the compassion and kindness. That's what came to my mind, you know, that there's always a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Um,
1: how is it, because we're just like the human being is like an all like, inclusive package, of soul. You can't like separate the soul from the human being. Like how is our karma individualized? Like when we're born.
0: Yeah. Well, the karma is everything we think, say, and do, and it's said when we're born that karmic energy from the past lifetime is rooted in our bhavanga consciousness, which is a very rudimentary consciousness we don't have access to with our intellect and there are seeds there from all the past lifetimes and when we become enlightened it we we can decode those seeds and see back see all the different lifetimes we've we've had i sort of like that idea but they because they're at a very very subconscious level they have a subtle influence on us all the time you know and so it tends to determine our individual thinking speaking and acting those seeds from past lifetimes but we can always override them, and that's really the point. We don't have to be a victim to all the past lives we've had. This life, this present moment, is the place where we can create our future. I don't know if that was the answer you were looking for.
1: So our karma is sort of like identifies with our consciousness. That, like, like, If we're born into a different being or something, yeah. how would the karma that we had in like our first life go transfer to that?
0: Yeah, like say we were born a dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, it's it said that that karmic energy is, is 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 within the consciousness. The body drops, and the body is part of this world, this world of birth and death. But the, but the consciousness, uh, the stream of consciousness, uh, travels on. So it's in there someplace. And like we have two dogs at our meditation center, and they and they sort of like the incense and the chanting we do and stuff, and it said that if you want your animals to be reborn as human beings, introduce them to the dharma, show them a picture of the Buddha, you know, know, burn incense around them, and that plants a seed to come back as a human being. So I'm thinking if we're really good, our dogs will be reborn as human beings, they'll move into our center and they'll help pay the rent. (laughs) So we're working hard to give them a human rebirth, you know. So I, I, I think it's in the consciousness. I think that's what.
1: Is it the consciousness that we talk about when we say, like, achieving
0: nirvana? Yes. Your body cannot achieve nirvana. It's stuck. It has to die. But your, but your consciousness can exist without uh, birth if it's rooted in nirvana. So we're talking about consciousness. That's exactly right. We are transforming our consciousness. And then we have to go to the gym to transform our bodies. Or Tai Chi, or yoga, or like the consciousness, know. isn't
1: that, wouldn't that be like identifying with, like sort of the, the eye, like
0: the the In a way, but, but consciousness is always in process. So it's hard to, for instance, put your foot in the same river twice. It's hard to have the same thought twice. I would say it's impossible. Because it's always in a constant state of flux and change, and so it's not like an inden, uh, an independent, unconditional thing. It's dependent and conditional and ever changing consciousness. Yeah. So thanks for the questions. Good questions. Yeah.
1: Um, I guess this is kind of follow up to his last question. Uh, uh, when we die and our karma slash consciousness travels on, what is it self directed and how does, does it choose which sperm and egg to attach itself to or is it just completely random?
0: Yeah, really good questions. And uh, you're going to have to understand that I can't remember any past lifetimes, so this is just from what I've read in my understanding of Buddhism. Um, we can direct our, our rebirth consciousness. It said our, the, the last thought of this lifetime is the first thought of the next lifetime. So if we have a skillful last thought, will have a skillful first thought. So you want to have a thought of love, compassion, wisdom, and generosity. How does the uh, Gandhava, the karmic energy, seek out the sperm and egg? It seeks out warm, moist places. So it doesn't have any kind of like intellectual intelligence saying, hey, this looks like a good rebirth. If it's warm and moist, that's where it's headed. So it's, it's pretty basic stuff. Yeah. And there's so many variables that go on. Now, at our center, Vietnamese Zen, um, we have a, a Ulambana ceremony every year. And Ulambana ceremony is for all the karmic energy that hasn't found a home yet, that hasn't been reborn. And sometimes when people die, they're so attached to the earth, or their relatives, or their friends, or their golf game, that they can't leave. And there's, it's not good being on earth without a body because there's nothing for you to do. So this consciousness, this energy, this karmic energy is sort of just like all around. So we have bamboo in front of our uh, meditation center, and the, the sound of the wind and the bamboo gets the spirit's attention. We also have these giant sticks that we hit together. That sound gets the spirit's attention, the karmic energy's attention. And then we give them a Dharma talk. We talk to the energy about Buddhism and the Dharma and about rebirth, encouraging them to be reborn again not staying here. And oftentimes if you go into a hospital room where a Buddhist is dying and some of the relatives are crying, they'll kick the relatives out who are crying because that increases the desire not to leave them behind. And so I had a Vietnamese monk come over to our meditation center and we have a a memorial altar of all the people that have died. And one of the funny things for me about that is when they had the pictures taken, they were in good health and they were all smiling. So you look at a memorial altar, you have all these smiling faces looking back at you. And I'm thinking, they're thinking, you're next. And that's why they're smiling. But the <laughs> but the Vietnamese master came over to our center, and the first thing he did was he went over to the memorial altar, and he went, go, 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 go. Because there was still... They were still hanging out there. They didn't want to go. So death in Buddhism is, is, is really looked at in, in a very healthy way, I think. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, they have different bardos. They have different levels of death. And back in the 60s, there was a book written based on that called The Psychedelic Experience. It was written by Tim Leary and Ram Das and one other guy. And what they did is they took the Tibetan Book of the Dead and they made a road map for people that took LSD. Because death is sort of like the deconstruction of consciousness. And LSD is the deconstruction of the ego, personality. So they would read from the uh, psychedelic experience in the same way that Tibetan monks would read from the Tibetan Book of the Dead to people who are dying, to give them a roadmap of what states of consciousness to be aware of, to look out for what direction to go in, what direction to avoid. So there's a lot of technical stuff in Buddhism about how to die, and how to die well. Now you're all too young to have done this, but what I would recommend is the next time you go to church and you talk to your minister or your pastor or your imam or your rabbi or your monk or your priest, ask them how to die in that tradition. Because most people ask their clergy how to live and have a good life. You know? But just see what they have to say, because I bet you, every tradition has a roadmap to die and what you need to do. And none of us know when our time's up. So that's good information to know. Yeah, thanks for that question. I hope that that was an answer that was useful. Okay, okay. good. And, hey, the questions keep coming, huh? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Really good question. Okay, the two really important aspects of Buddhism are wisdom and compassion. If you only have compassion and no wisdom, you'll give all your money away and starve. If you have too much wisdom and no compassion, you won't give any away. Okay, so you've got to have a balance of both. The deal is, when you say no, be kind. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) It's okay to say no, Okay, it's second question. And
1: then uh, last time we talked about the five precepts.
0: Yes. Um, one of which was, I think, um, uh, like sexual... Sexual misconduct. Sex. Um.
1: And <laughs> I was reading um, something, and I thought it said uh, that there are some Eastern uh, traditions that say that um, that
0: would include homosexuality. Okay, so you want to know what Buddhism says about homosexuality? Yeah. Okay, good. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> It it doesn't say it's good, it doesn't say it's bad. It does talk about homosexuality to monks and nuns. And because we're celibate, everything's out. So, what I found uh, in a book by Bhikkhu Bodhi, an American Buddhist monk, it's called The Eightfold Path. And this is what he said, the Buddha said, to lay people about sex. These are the four things. Don't have sex with people who are married because it causes a lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people who are engaged. It causes a lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people who are being supported by their parents. Children causes a lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people against the will. It causes a lot of suffering. And that was it. That's what the Buddha said. Now, when you talk about monks and nuns, we have two books filled with stuff and stories to go with it. But as a layperson, that's pretty much it. Now, I would add one thing, that there's nothing wrong with sex. Sex is wonderful. That's the reason we're all here today. The problem with sex, according to Buddhism, is the desire for sex. If you have great desire for sex, it will never be ultimately satisfied by sexual activity. In fact, sexual activity will just increase the desire. Buddhism says the problem with suffering is the desire so when the Buddha achieved his nirvana he ended all desire and he ended having sex not because sex was bad but because he had no desire to have sex so there you go I, 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 I know some people think Buddhism is, is gay friendly some people think it's not some people are trying to put Buddhism on their side you know And Buddhism is really neutral when it comes to sexual activity. It has a lot to say about desire. But those four things were pretty much all the Buddha ever said. So I hope you find that useful. And
1: that those four things
0: would also relate to premarital sex, for example? No. No. It's just if if somebody else is premarital, if they're engaged. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but no, uh, he, he didn't say you had to be married to have sex, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. so now I, I would add that every city, every state, every country has their own rules on sex. And the reason they have those rules is because they don't want us having sex increasing the suffering of others. So a lot of times it's not good to have sex outside in front of people because they it creates a lot of suffering. <laughs> so <laughs> So it's that kind of thing, you know. Is it, is it against Buddhism to be, like to be monotheist? Oh okay. Is it is it wrong as a Buddhist to believe in God? Yeah. No. It's fine. And a lot of Buddhists believe in God, but not because of Buddhism. There's nothing there that says, you know, anything about God. And some Buddhists don't believe in God, but that's not because of Buddhism either. Some Buddhists don't know that's because of Buddhism. So it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. You can believe in God. Because the thing about Buddhism is it's not about finding God. It's about finding the end of suffering. Yeah, thank you for the questions. Those are really good questions. Okay, well, I think we've run over. Should we just do like a loving kindness and call it a night? Well, that's it. This is Reverend Kusla and the Urban Dharma Podcast from downtown Los Angeles saying be well, be happy, and most of all, be free from suffering.